So welcome to BAFTA Scotland's special screenwriter session with Jed Mercurio um, in association with our hosts, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Um, Jed's right in the middle of, of production on series four of Line of Duty, so we're particularly grateful that he has um, taken the time out of his very busy schedule to be our guest tonight. Um, the television sensation that is Line of Duty has managed to achieve the holy grail of television drama, a stunning rating success, universal critical acclaim, and a cupboard full of industry awards, including the RTS Award for Best Drama Series. Uh, Jed's screenwriting career, though, goes back 20 years. I think it's 20 years, isn't it? During which time he has written, produced, and on occasion directed some of the most popular and seminal television dramas of our time, from the groundbreaking hospital drama Cardiac Arrest to the multi-award winning series Bodies, ranked by the Times as one of the top 10 shows of the decade and by The Guardian as one of the greatest TV dramas of all time. Um, uh, more recently, he has written and created uh, the hugely ambitious Critical for Sky, adaptations of Lady Chatterley's Lover and Frankenstein, and of course, his current hit series, Line of Duty, of which more later. So I'm going to start by asking Jed some questions of my own, but there'll be lots of time uh, towards the end for you to ask questions, so please have a think about what you might want to talk to him about. So firstly, Jed, um, you came to screenwriting in, a, in quite an unusual way because you were working as a doctor at the time you started writing. So tell us how you got your first break. Yeah, it was, it was uh, definitely the, the most unusual way in. I, I um, never really thought about a career in the media at all. Um, I, I was always very technically minded and studied science in school and then went to medical school. Um, I was a, a house officer in the early 90s when I saw an advert in the British Medical Journal from a TV production company that were looking to meet doctors to advise on a new uh, original medical series they had in development. And um, I think I really wanted to tell them how it was. You know, I, I was used to watching things like Casualty and a thing called Medics, which seemed to me to have a very different view of what hospital life was like from the one that I was actually experiencing in, in, in real life. And um, I ended up having a very long chat with them, about two hours when I went down to a meeting and told them what it was like being a, a junior hospital doctor working ridiculously long hours and having very little supervision. And from that, they, they ended up coming back to me and asking me to to, to formulate some kind of ideas about how that might work as a TV series. So I was, in, I was incredibly lucky, really. So what did you think was particularly missing from the medical dramas that did exist at the time that you really wanted to, to explore? I mean, were you angry about the NHS? What, what, what were you... I think what was missing was like an iota of authenticity. It was, it was just a world that didn't look remotely credible to me and seemed to be based on what medical life was like, fifth, not 50 years, but, but at least 30 years before in terms of maybe the people who were involved in creating the series and making them had kind of um, I ideas of what hospital life was based on those old works and thought that's what it must be like without actually investigating the, 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 the primary reality of it. So when uh, I watched those programs, I, I did get angry, yeah. When I, when I watched things which seemed to, to, to suggest to anyone who didn't have first-hand knowledge of hospital life that 
being a junior doc hospital doctor was kind of easy, and, and actually um, you spent, what you were doing was, was generally being sort of posh and arrogant, and then a well-meaning nurse would sort it all out. It was that kind, that kind of cliche was something that was so divorced from the reality of, 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 of my experience and from virtually everyone that I knew, that it, but it seemed so pervasive and persuasive. Mm. And so how long did you, how long was it before you gave up your day job? I mean, were you kind of writing and being a doctor at the same time mm. for, for a while? Yeah, I, I, I continued doing both uh, when I wrote series one and then um, series two got commissioned and then that had to be made much faster as, as, as usually the broadcaster always wants it to turn around faster. So I ended up um, persuading the production company to pay for a locum to do my job <laughs> and the, the hospital were fine with that and I kind of went in some days and then I had writing days and then I took a sabbatical to be the medical advisor on series two which we, we shot up here in Glasgow. Um, and that was when I really got into kind of working in TV. So there must have been a period where you were writing under a pseudonym. Yes. And it was going out and yes. you still had friends in the business. So what was the reaction? Because it's a pretty warts and I mean, both cardiac arrest and mm. bodies later mm. are a very, um, you know, warts and all portrayal yeah, of that I world. So, yeah. so how was it received by, by your colleagues? <coughs> well. In terms of my peers, it was it was almost universal. I'd say almost universally because obviously not everyone agrees, and medicine is a very kind of broad church. But almost universally, junior hospital doctors recognised that that it that it was saying something that hadn't been said before about what the specific pressures were on on the the junior members of the profession at that time, and also in terms of the interaction with other uh, other members of staff, they felt that it, it kind of um, shed light on that and demystified the relationships between juniors and consultants and juniors and nurses and ju juniors and other members of staff and, and also in terms of the interaction with patients. So from that viewpoint, um, it, it went down pretty well and I never really had any problems at work. Mo most of my mates kind of, um, well, they, they thought it was a little bit kind of more emotional in places than they expected. Mm. They thought it would just be kind of bedpan humour <laughs> uh, because that's presumably what they thought of me. So when, uh, at the end of the first episode, when there was a kind of a twist at the end, which was, was actually quite moving, it was all a bit embarrassing for mm. everybody because a, a bunch of them watched it in the doctor's mess. I was, I was down in London with my showbiz mates, but they, were, uh, they watched it in the doctor's mess and I, and, uh, yeah, they, they said it was all a bit weird at the end. It was like, like you know, one of their mates had, had emoted in front of them, mm. and obviously doctors don't do that. They were fine with the gore and the black yeah, humor, that's right. but emotion. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, in terms of the rest, I mean, um, I think my, my favorite comment was um, someone who wrote to Points of View saying that, uh, that the series had shown a houseman with his hands in his pockets on a ward round, and this was inaccurate and offensive. And, and I later found out that this person who purported to know so much about it was a retired consultant psychiatrist. So you've got three things there in, in terms of what he is that tells you that he's completely up the wall. <laughs> uh, so after, um, 
after cardiac arrest, you went on to write shows like the comedy drama The Grimleys, which I think ran for several series, didn't it? Which was tonally, couldn't be more different, really, from cardiac arrest. Yeah. Um, so was the approach very different? Did you find writing that a very different process? Or I'll tell you where, where that came from. It was that cardiac arrest was, was, was a comedy drama, and the more we got into it, the more dramatic it became. So all the kind of... I would call it humour that I was putting in that, that never made the cut. So there were loads of gags that were going on in, in the script that we, we filmed. And then when we were trying to cut it down to time and keep the pace up, often the gags were getting lost. And, and I just kind of had this desire to vent my humour. So uh, fortunately, the Grimleys got that out of my system. And I've never tried to make anyone laugh <laughs> since. But... The, but um, it was that really. I just felt I, I was I was very new to the industry. I was very naive. I didn't have any any specific ambition about what kind of writer I wanted to be. In fact, I didn't really think of myself as a writer. I was just I, the Grimleys came out of someone someone approaching me at the Edinburgh Festival when I was on a panel about medical um, shows and came up and and said said you sound like you could write a comedy. Do you want to? Do you want to have a go? And that's honestly how it happened. And then, and then I did that for three years. So you were, all, you were also, I believe, in the RAF before you became mm. a doctor. So, yeah. I mean, ha I'm, and I'm presuming some of that came, in, came out in um, Invasion Earth, which was, you know, partly about the RAF. But mm. so how, how important is, is putting your own life experience into writing, do you think? I mean, is that... Well, I've been very lucky. I mean, just, just to... To, to kind of clarify, I haven't kind of had loads of careers sequentially. What happened was that I went to medical school and then I became interested in aviation medicine as a specialisation because basically I wanted to be an astronaut. So I joined the RAF and learned to fly and I was in a, pro and I was in a training programme to do aviation medicine and then uh, the Cold War came to an end and budgets were cut and the programme was cut. So I then tried to keep that going. And actually, when we were filming series two of Cardiac Arrest up here, I, I went to an army interview to do the aviation medicine program in the Army Air Corps mm -hmm. and then came back to, to Glasgow and then had to decide, was I going to join the army uh, or carry on in okay. TV? And I kind of, I probably would have joined the army if it wasn't for the fact that they said that their program was, was, was in doubt. So I just thought, I can't risk joining the army, being in the army, and then not getting to do what I wanted to do. It's mm -hmm. not the sort of thing where you can say, I don't really fancy crouching behind this bush for <laughs> six months, or whatever job they give you mm. if you can't do what you want. So, mm. um, so then I, I just found myself trying to move forward. And I always had medicine to go back to. I was, I was having rolling sabbaticals. Every six months, I'd... I'd Right, say no, still doing TV, mm. and and the, my hospital would say, okay, well, just just let us know. Do and you that think went you could on. still practice medicine? I mean, have you? Do that you now call yourself a screenwriter? <laughs> that would be absolutely <laughs> insane. I mean, when uh, there were moments when we were making critical, when um, we were in the middle. Of the, it, it, if you haven't seen it, and probably most of you haven't, it was always someone who was critically unwell. It wasn't like you know, someone comes into hospital and basically that's just a gateway to a talking cure about their relationships. Mm. These people were properly mangled and it was all the, the um, 
uh, efforts to save their lives. But there were times on set when we had all the consultant advisors, um, but we were still trying to figure out how to make something work in the moment. And one of the, the actors, Prasanna Puwanaraja, was uh, an SHO in, in ENT and is now an actor, and he was playing an anaesthetist. And there were times when Prasanna and I were trying to figure out how to make the medicine work. And there were moments where we were saying, this is like the NHS in the 90s. Basically, two SHOs are trying to figure out how to save the patient. So can you talk a bit about um, how ideas for shows come to you? Do they, is, does it start with a character? Does it start with a, a world? How, does it depend on the show? How, how, how do these things? Um, I mean, that's a really good question and probably one of the most difficult to answer. I mean, as a writer, it's sort of your job just to generate ideas and it becomes unconscious, I think. You know, I, I, don't, I don't sit down and think, right, today I've got to come up with an idea. I mean, I could. You know, I could sit down and just spend a whole day hitting myself over the head until something clever happened. But normally what happens is that you, you're, you're out in the world or you're reading something or... Uh, or, or you're watching something and it just sparks off a, a process and the, the first thing that has to occur is for me is that it's something that I would want to watch um, and so that then leads to me thinking about the architecture of it and then that is something that you you just have to spend time on you know I don't think you do get the the most fully formed ideas very quickly although um, I, I uh, created a show with Stephen Bochco when I was working in the US, which was a, a, a script. And Stephen told me that um, when he created Dookie Hauser, he actually figured it all out while he was sitting on the toilet. <laughs> and it was just that he, he wanted to do this thing about this, this young kid who was a doctor, but he couldn't figure out how a young kid could be a doctor. And then during the the process of what he was doing, he figured out that if, if a genius had had leukemia as a kid and had been in that environment and therefore could absorb all that information in a way, and, 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 and it all kind of came to him. And I've never had that kind so of experience. So ideas can come to you in Yeah, anywhere. I've never had that experience. I've certainly had the, the, the experience of thinking, oh, it'd be really good to do a series about this, mm -hmm. or wouldn't that be a really interesting scene? Could that then lead to a point where you've got critical mass, where something has got enough dramatically about it that it can sustain a story. So you had obviously looked at the NHS and cardiac arrest and then you returned to mm. the subject for this. So what, yeah. what did you feel you hadn't explored in that that you wanted to return to? And then obviously later <coughs> you've returned to the NHS again in critical. So yeah. what is it that continues to fascinate you about it? Well, I think with, with, with cardiac arrest, I was writing from a very definite perspective of, a, uh, of the, the most junior ranks and trying to do something that was kind of an overview that was about just the whole thing and, and, and a big ensemble cast. And um, it, it was very story of the week led and and, um, and really just tr was, was trying to give a flavour of, of, of hospital life that was that just hadn't been seen. With, with bodies, I wanted to, to deal with something very specific, which was about medical error. Some of the most interesting stories we'd done on cardiac arrest have been about medical error. I think we'd done two episodes that involved the, the way in which um, people uh, dealt with internally the things going wrong, where it was very obvious that someone had made a mistake. Um, and 
it was becoming quite a, 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 a talked about issue as well, that probably around the time that I did bodies it had come out that, that probably 10% of hospital patients experience ad adverse events due to medical error. And these things weren't being measured and were generally being covered up. And so it felt like if we could make a series that was purely about that, that's, that's what that specific clip was, is absolutely what the concept of the series was, which was you're dealing with highly trained professionals who will obviously make isolated errors, which you hope will be uncharacteristic. And, and what you can't do is confuse those with negligence. There's a difference between error and negligence. The doctor who says, well, obviously I've killed someone. I've been a doctor for 13 years. That sounds scary to people outside of the profession, and that's why doctors are scared of talking openly about error. But within the profession, there wasn't sufficient conversation about how you deal with negligence. So you obviously work with medical advisors a lot, mm. and, and presumably police advisors on line of duty. Yeah. So, you know, to what degree do you feel it's important to hold on to accuracy and um, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of poetic license, but how, yeah, how, how, how closely do you stick to the truth, whether it be police or <coughs> medicine? Well, I'm, I'm under no illusions that, that, that drama is the truth. I, I, I think that people have different views of, of reality anyway. You know, just going back to my own primary experience of working in, in, in a hospital, I could be working alongside someone who'd have a very different view of an event that we both just witnessed. So you, you can't say that there is a universal truth, but... Um, I'm interested in, in doing precinct drama, and so therefore you end up having a certain amount of procedure. And being acquainted with how procedures happen in the real world, I find inspiring. That I think that if, if, if you learn how to, if you choose to write about how police officers or doctors do things based on watching other medical dramas or police dramas, you'll end up writing a whole load of things that just don't make any sense. And if what you can do is create something that's distinctive and has its own identity. So with, with, with Line of Duty, um, the more I got into that, the more I became fascinated by the in intricacies of police practice, particularly the way in which evidence is handled and the way in which interviews are conducted. And they were just things I'd never seen before in a, in a, in a police procedural. And so we brought them on board and it's now become the identity of the series. Mm -hmm. So obviously you won numerous awards for bodies, including the RTS and BAFTA nominations. Um, it's great when you say numerous awards and then you just mention the only ones we won, but that's, that's kind of... Many, <laughs> many nominations. Yeah, um, loads of nominations. And, yeah. and, and lots of wins too. Um, <laughs> but does, what does that do to you in terms of the pressure that puts on you for the next show? Does it make it really... Do, do, does that weigh heavily on your shoulders? No. Did it weigh heavily on your shoulders after Bodies? Did you think, oh God, the next thing I do has got to be brilliant? No, I, I just wish it would make the commissioners leave you alone. Uh, I mean, what happened with bodies? We won the RTS, and then the BBC didn't, didn't commission a full third series. So in the end, it's irrelevant. Mm. Uh, that's no disrespect to people who give you awards, but I'd rather have another series than a great big glittering trophy. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's really big. <laughs> and it gets you a third series. Um, so... Um, 
just just looking at, 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 at obviously bodies and um, critical and then line of duty, you do write brilliantly about institutions and work environments, particularly those those big institutions like the police and the NHS. What what do you why do you think you're so fascinated with that? And in particular, when institutions get things wrong. Well, I I guess I've been part of institutions, and and so I I entered the world of work in in the NHS and, and in the Royal Air Force and. Then when I started working in TV, uh, which was the, the first writing I did, I was part of the institution of TV, particularly because I'd done so much for the BBC. Um, so you end up kind of being informed by how those things work. And now that I'm in, in the very fortunate and privileged position I'm in, where I'm kind of within a hierarchy on, on my own productions, so I'm seeing how that functions as, a, as, as an institution as well. I just feel very comfortable writing about those things because I feel I've got a lot of ongoing direct experience mm. of it. And I'm also just interested in the world of work. I think that it's really important that your characters have goals. And generally, if people uh, have a job, then they're given goals. And that kind of, that sort of helps you as a writer rather than having to invent a, mm. a, a goal. It's like, it's, it's like I write a police series and they investigate crimes because it's their job. I don't write something about an amateur sleuth who you then have to wonder why they investigate crimes and then you have to wonder why and if anyone would let them. It's, you know, I, I, I just feel more comfortable writing uh, social realism within a precinct. How did, what was the genesis of that, of that show? How did you come up with the idea? How did it come about? Um, I think because I, I, I'm interested in institutions and I'm interested in how when an institution gets it wrong, how often that can be the most revealing examination of it. Um, and I was always fascinated reading about, about police error and police misconduct. And, and um, I guess the, 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 the thing that really made me think it was, it, it was time to try and pull an idea together was was the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes on, on the, the London Underground. And obviously there are, there are similarities in that, that fictional event there. Um, so that was it really. And, and also because I, I, I really wanted to do a, a crime drama or a cop show, I'd never done one. Um, and when I started working on the story, I immediately realized that that, that, that genre gives you things that are very hard to get in other genres, real jeopardy, real high stakes. Um, and in, in a medical drama, it's, you, you can raise the stakes, but often it, it's hard to make it seem like that those stakes are any different from what people face every day anyway. Um, and it's really hard to put your protagonists in jeopardy if they're, they're, they're medical people. In fact, we've all watched medical dramas in which they do put them in jeopardy, and it looks ludicrous. So it's it's um, it's just it just felt right, and then but then it's that creative process of, of working out the architecture of the show, and 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 working with an editorial team, and getting the, the idea to the point where we can take it to a broadcaster and try and persuade them to 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 fund a script, and 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 so forth. So it ends up leading having the idea is the easy bit. The hard bit, as you know, is development. 
Yeah. And how long did it take then between you coming up with the idea and the show? Oh, finally? years, years. <laughs> I mean, it's um, probably four mm. between, between um, take first taking the idea to a broadcaster and it uh, being on the air. I'd say four. And did you originally conceive it as a standalone serial? Because obviously it's, it's now, you're now into series four, mm. about to be series five. Um, did you imagine it was just, it started as a serial or did you design it as a show that was going to return? It, it, it was designed as a show that would return. I mean, I, I would be very wary now of, of, of developing something that didn't have returnability. I think it's just so much effort and so hard to get something on the air that if it's successful, then you, you want to have a plan in place and you want to have everybody ready to, mm. to, uh, to do more. In, in, in fact, you know, a series normally becomes returnable the night after the viewing figures yeah. come in, if they're yeah. any good. Yeah. So, um, but it wasn't, it was a hit, and then you suddenly thought, shit, I better figure out how to, how to return this show. You had planned it. Uh, like but that. I had planned it. I mean, when yeah. w w but that was important just to place it in the right way with the broadcaster, because they, it, it did appear like it was a serial and, mm. and didn't have returnability. Mm. So I did explain that, that, the, the way it would work would be that the investigators would come back and the character we call the antagonist, who was played by Lenny James in series one, the, the allegedly corrupt cop, who generally tends to drive the story, mm. that, that would be the character that would be changed and we would, we would right. go for another character, another actor of that So you type. always knew that Lenny's character would, spoiler alert, die at the end of season one yeah. and that you would replace him, but then of course, Keely Hawes' character goes from series two to series three. So yes. was that just she was received so well as a character, or was it part of the plan? Well, I think that we we have to ring the changes. We can't we can't kill our mm. <laughs> antagonist at the end of every, end of every series. Yeah. Um, so we always have to find a way that that their story ends in a, in, in in a distinctive way. Mm. Um, with that particular character. Um, it, it just seemed that people were so fascinated by her and wanted to, to know more. Mm. And it was very, it, the process was very quick of going to Keeley and encouraging her to, to come back into the show and then coming up with a, a story um, mm. which would then involve the investigators. But also, we wanted to be true to our model, which is that each, each first episode appears to be a brand new story with no baggage. And, and, and series three, um, Keely's character doesn't appear in it at all in the first episode, only, only appears mm. uh, midway through episode two, and we kept that secret. No one knew that she mm. was gonna be coming back. In, in fact, she, she very uh, generously lied whenever anyone asked her. <laughs> so talk, talk us through the casting process on that show, because uh, in season one, obviously, Lenny was kind of the lead. I mean, yeah, um, he was the lead, yeah. a sort of anti-hero lead. Yeah. So did you start with him and build out from there, or how did that, how did that process work? Uh, with, with that character in, in series one, uh, by the time we went to casting, we, we had the, the five scripts. The, the series one was, was five five episodes um, and 
we, we were sending them out to actors and it was just that usual dance between getting people mm. who were interested but also getting people that the broadcaster will approve yeah. in their own infinite wisdom. And so it, there was a lot of back and forth and then Lenny became interested and we, we had a Skype call that went very well and I, I really admired his work and, and it just worked straight away. Mm. And so he, he then came aboard and, and then... Uh, Lenny and I talked quite a lot about the character and the world because the the character had been written as kind of uh, ethnically neutral, and then when Lenny came forward, we we talked about it. You know that that it didn't feel that in in the authenticity of this world that it was colorblind, that his ethnicity was significant, and so therefore we we talked about how that would play in the in the show, mm. um, and then. Moving on to series two, again, it was like thinking about the the kind of character whose story I wanted to tell. Mm. And there was just a feeling that we really had to, to have as much of a contrast with Lenny as possible. So therefore it became the character was going to be female. The character was, wasn't going to be a swaggering, admired detective he was officer of the year mm. as if such a thing exists but he was kind of there was that whole thing that he was like yeah. you know the man and mm. so with with Keely's character it was she was dowdy she had no mates like they all went to lunch down the pub and they left her with a little Tupperware container and <laughs> that was her life mm. and and um and, and and so then when we when we were casting um, we were just we just needed a star, you know. We were just desperate to replace mm. Lenny, and we we auditioned quite a lot of actors, and there were others that were, um, you know, we were in talks with, and then and then Keely came in, and um, it just worked. It's interesting because it's it was at the time it felt very against type for her because she had done a lot yeah. of kind of quite yeah. a slightly softer, more um, well glam. Glamorous, glamorous, glamorous roles. So presumably, she was drama, yeah. quite attracted to the idea of playing something very different to what she'd done before. I, I guess imagine. so. I guess so. <laughs> she said yes. It never, it never kind of came yeah. up. I kind of think we just sort of we, we 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 talked at the audition, and she seemed really excited by the the possibilities of the role, and then and then beyond that, you, we don't really kind of have those conversations about you know mm. what it's going to do for our careers. We kind of get into how are we going to play this yeah, scene, yeah. right? What we're going to do about your hair, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you talked briefly there about um, broadcasters' expectations yes. in terms of cast. So, mm. how much pressure do you feel to have a smattering of stars in there, or you know what what is that um, dance? Well, the the like? reality of it is that when you when you cast someone who's going to be um, a, a lead in, in a series, in any series, then the broadcaster will have the final say. So they'll, they'll either mention the kind, the kind of actor by name that they want you to cast, or there'll be a back and forth of these are the people who are available, the, this is someone who's interested, yeah. and then you have to go to the, in the case of Line of Duty, to the BBC to get the, the commissioners to sign off on being able to offer to that person. Mm. Um, so in terms of how you 
work with actors. Do you uh, are, are there adjustments that you make to the script after you've seen mm. them in the rushes, in the read through, yeah. in rehearsals if you have any rehearsal time? How much flexibility is there? That's in the such script? a knowing remark. Yeah, <laughs> rehearsal time, but the rehearsal day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean w that. No actor is going to play the role exactly as scripted. That's just not, it's just not physically possible that you're going to be able to, 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 to lay a performance over the script and it's going to be an exact match. So <coughs> everything will be subject to some kind of interpretation and difference. And what you're looking for is, is that synthesis of the, the writing, the performance and the direction that allows the character to, to, be, to work for the story. So if someone's playing a part differently from scripted, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad thing. It, it, if it's working and I can see it working, then I can alter the script. Mm. And sometimes you know, that happens on set. But a lot of the time, once someone's up and running in the role, then it's pretty easy to, to feed it into the, the script going forward. Because normally, um, by the time someone's cast is going to be in the whole series, we haven't completely finished all the scripts. Yeah. Um, so I, I quite like that that sort of that that collaborative approach, that kind of synergy between between uh, cast and, and and the writing. Mm. It's probably the, the the best part of, of of being not the best part, but the most advantageous part of being a showrunner is that as a writer, I have direct access to the cast. I don't have to go via anyone else. Mm. So I can talk directly about the script with cast over the phone or in meetings or on set. And, it, and, and it, it, because so many writers are marginalised, and I certainly was at the start of my career, where having access to, to cast and talking about the, the role and the scenes was something that always had to be mediated by other parties. Now that that doesn't have to happen, it, mm. just, it, it, it ends up being a much more fertile process. And of course, in Line of Duty, you've written all of the episodes, mm. haven't you, throughout yes. all the series, which yeah. you haven't done on all the shows you've done, but why did yeah. you decide to do it on Line of Duty rather than bringing in writers to do some episodes? It's just because it's so so heavily serialised, Sarah, that, that I kind of make it up as I go along, so therefore it's impossible. Mm. If, if we hired a writer to write episode four, I'd have to say, no idea what's happening in episode four, mate, just you wait there. And mm. so then the time comes, and I think, I've got, I know what we're doing in episode four, I may as well do it. Mm. So the, the advantage of, of having other writers is where things can happen in parallel, like on, on Critical, which was very story of the week led. We'd have four or five episodes being written in parallel by writers, and so therefore we, we have the advantages of that. Um, the only way that we could do line of duty with other writers would be to fundamentally alter the, the approach to the work which would be to storyline the whole series mm. and then partition it out. Mm. Um, so you're obviously, particularly on Line of Duty, but, but on most of your other shows, creatively absolutely at the centre of it. In fact, you're directing some of the current series, mm. aren't you? Mm. So how does that affect how you then, what your relationship is like with the broadcaster, the commissioner? I mean, is there a kind of ongoing... <laughs> um, what? What? ...debate on. with the commissioners? How How... How, how much do you push back? How much do you say, right, this is my show, I'm getting on with it? What is that process like? I just, I, I, I aim to please. <laughs> very diplomatic answer. No, I, it's a reality. You know, mm. I'm very fortunate that the, the, the series is successful and therefore 
to people don't want to interfere with the success. Mm -hmm. They they want to to discuss what we're doing and they that they have a view and we get we we have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So that's all part of it. But generally, if what what the broadcaster wants on line of duty tends to be in the best interest of, of yeah. the program. And presumably they've relaxed a bit once once you get yeah. beyond serious. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've never been as autonomous as I am on line mm. of duty. And, and uh, at times I'm, I'm, I'm staggered by how limitless my power is. But then there are other, t there are other, other shows when it's not, it's, it's not doing so well and they're all over you and, mm. uh, and it's a very difficult thing. Like mm. on, on bodies, th there was always the sense that the program wasn't successful enough. And so therefore those, those conversations were at times um, challenging the, the, the central concept and the style of the series mm. and, and, and the, the methods of storytelling that mm. we use. On Line of Duty, no one's doing that. No one's saying, can, can, yeah. can, don't do those interviews where they, they go through all the evidence properly. Just have someone bang on the table and say, you did it, didn't you? Mm. It's that kind of, that's just not happening. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so who would like to ask Jed a question? If you could just wait for the microphone, because otherwise the people that are filming this can't hear what you're saying. You've done a lot of groundbreaking medical drama. What do you think's next for the medical drama, particularly here in the UK? What's the next sort of theme or strand, do you think? Uh, I think that's a that's a, a really difficult thing. I, I probably would be reluctant to make another medical drama in the UK because I think it's really hard to make successful ones. I think you've got Casualty and Holby, which are these great big juggernauts that will outlive us all, and then um, everything else fails. So it's probably time to stop. <laughs> I mean, I, I I mean, when we did Critical, we made it for Sky, we made it for a niche audience. You know, we we had all those kinds of things in place. Um, there's no way we could have made critical for a main, mainstream audience. It just wasn't. And so um, I, I think it's, uh, I think there, there may be a, a, another successful medical drama, but I don't, I don't see any on the horizon. Um, so I look forward to being proved wrong, but I, I can't help with that one, I'm afraid. Hi, uh, has the switch to BBC One from two for the new series of Line of Duty affected your thinking or are you sort of keeping it just the same but um keeping it the same i mean I, it, it was one of those things where we, we talked about if there was anything that we would do different and i've kind of adopted this policy now which is if if, if i'm if i'm in a discussion about what we're doing and i'm losing the argument then i say i think it'll work better for the bbc one audience uh, but apart from that, we're not, we're not doing anything. We're doing exactly the same. I think it's really, really hard to try and guess what audiences want and like. And I, I, I always think, uh, like when I'm, often these things happen in the cutting room when I'm actually watching an episode and we're looking at a scene or a moment and how we're, we're, we're getting down to the fine detail of how it's playing. And, and you look at something and, and someone might say, oh, are we understanding what's going on here? Can we simplify it or can we soften it? And I just kind of think, I don't want to do that. I think if, if someone's watching it and they don't get it or they don't like it, well, fine, go and watch ITV1. Just, I'm, I'm doing this and I can't, I just can't guess what people will like. 
and, and I've kind of given up. Um, Netflix and Amazon Prime are, are, are changing the landscape of, of serial drama. I'm just wondering if you've got any ideas up your sleeve that involve quite high budgets, very high-end drama, like The Crown, that you would take to somewhere like that, that you would share with us this evening? Um, no, uh, because, uh, well, firstly, I think it's, it's, um, it's really hard to get high-budget stuff made. Generally, the cheaper something is, the easier it is to get it made, and that's why Cardiac Arrest got made, because it was so cheap. It was half the price of, of primetime dramas at that time, and that's why people took a chance on an unknown writer with, with a, a, a kind of really revisionist approach to the medical drama. So that's kind of how my career started. And I've been lucky enough at times to to work on higher budget things, but that brings a whole load of pressures. Those streaming services are different, but then you look at the people who have been given those big budgets, and they're people who are really kind of A-list people in feature films or US TV. They're not, they're not giving $100 million budgets to someone who's never written anything before. So um, I think it ends up being the package, and I think you'd have to have probably a, a pack with dialogue polish on it and then go and take it out again and then spend the next five years doing dialogue polishes on a, on a script. Move on. You may be able to come back to it at some point, but, but move on and keep getting out there. The other thing is really target the kind of person who can help getting your, get your thing made. So if, you, if there's someone you admire or who, who makes a programming that is the kind of thing that you want to do and you feel you've written, then go after them. People respond to flattery. So get in touch with them and say, I really loved your program and I've written something really similar and I'd love you to be able to, to, to develop it. And then, uh, so make sure you've got the name of someone that you're targeting rather than just putting a message in a bottle and talking to some faceless company or some faceless organization. And then follow up in a really kind of, I'm not saying stalk them, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> Follow up. So if you don't hear back from them, just do some casual thing like say, oh, I'm just going to be near your offices next week. Can I pop in for a coffee or whatever it is? You know, just, just be smart about it. I mean, people, people do want to work with new talent. People are looking for things. But like any other industry, it's, it, 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 it so helps you to be on the inside. And, and, I'm, and I'm certainly not diminishing how hard it is to get on the inside. I've been on the outside, I know, and I think that what you have to do is, is, is obviously keep trying, but also be, be wary of the relationships you're getting into. You know, that's why I'm saying go, go to people who make the kinds of programs you like, because you can end up getting into destructive and dysfunctional relationships with people who don't get your work. And what they will end up doing is just making you feel really bad and they won't help your career. So that's the other thing. Not everybody in this industry can help you. Um, and, and the other thing is just remember that there is a large element of luck. You know, that, that I uh, very much acknowledge that I was incredibly fortunate to get my start in this, in this industry. I don't believe I'm any better at this than you. I was very lucky. I work very hard, but I'm not better at this than you. I just work really hard. If you work really hard, if you believe in yourself and you have talent, you will succeed.
Are there any <coughs> sorry? Are there any TV dramas that you look up to, either recently or when you were growing up? Yeah, they're they're all annoyingly better than mine. It's um, yeah, I love TV. I love watching TV, and I watch pretty much everything. I mean, I don't watch every episode of everything, but I watch e every new program that comes on. I'll watch at least one episode, and I think that the the standard out there is just amazing. I think that you could just name six or seven programs that are on the air now that I would I would watch a, a gentleman before mentioned The Crown on Netflix or The Lady. Sorry, it was The Lady mentioned The Crown. And um, I think that's brilliant. I love it. Um, I really like Westworld. Tandy Newton is in, in Line of Duty 4, and I think she's great in Westworld, and I, I really enjoy that program. Uh, I thought Fleabag was incredible. Um, that um, I, I think I, I've auditioned Phoebe Waller-Bridge for a couple of roles, and I always thought she was, she was a really amazing actress. And then I thought that was a really brilliant piece of work. I could just go on and on. Can I just ask a supplementary question then? You know, what is it you love particularly about television drama as opposed to film or theatre? What, what is it about TV that makes you want to write within that? As a well, I, I've kind of ended up working in TV and I, I, and I had a few forays into the feature film industry earlier in my career where the, the position of the writer is completely different. And... You know, I haven't, I, I haven't directed a feature film. I've directed singles and, and, and episodes of, of, of my work. And so the, the, the position of the writer as opposed to the director is very different. In TV, it really suits what I want to do in terms of, of, of having influence over the, the program. But I also, I just really love returning stories and returning characters. You know, we're, we're commissioned to do a fifth series of Line of Duty, which we're going to do um, the, the year after next. And I can't wait. You know, it actually, I find it gets easier. It's really hard coming up with the first series and then figuring out all the relationships and, and casting all the people. And once you've done that, once you've got them, it's just really a little bit easier that you know, you know what they look like and what they talk like and you know what their strengths are and then you know the world of the show. And therefore, you can, you can, you're not cutting corners, but you, uh, you, th there are assumptions you can make about how a story is going to function. So therefore, you can you can more quickly get to the point of, of, of pressing the button on it and knowing that it's going to work. And also knowing the architecture of, of the, the, the program in terms of what the locations are and, and what, its, what its set pieces are. So all those things end up making the job more rewarding in my view. So I think now, at this point in my career, I can't see myself doing anything other than, than returning series. Hi, uh, you've written novels as well. Um, mm. Uh, for you, that kind of idea generation process is that I want to write a book instead for a while, or is it I have this idea and it's something I really need to write about, but maybe this isn't going to be TV? Because I imagine something like Ascent wouldn't mm. fly with people like that, whereas Bodies kind of did. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that sometimes I get, I, I get an idea for something and I immediately realize it's not going to work as TV. And um, I mean, Ascent is a very good example, and, and I really loved writing that. But, but also it came at a point in my career where um, I was waiting for decisions, and, and um, I, I'd have, like for example, when Line of Duty was delivered to the BBC as the first script, and it went all the way up the chain and was approved by the, the, the then head of drama, who said, I really want to try and get this made. It was another 10 months before it got greenlit to production, and that's not a long time. That's kind of what it is like. And so if, 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 if I'm doing something else, 
like a, a book which I can start writing and then I can put down if, if I go into production. That, that feels like a, the, the right kind of way of dovetailing my writing. But ultimately, I've got to want to write the book. It's not that I'm just passing time. Um, and the, the, three, the three novels I wrote were things that I really felt would, would be best um, realized in, in the form of the novel. I think the novel has the greatest bandwidth of any form of writing. There's just, there's nothing you can't do in a novel. Whereas there are obvious limitations in, in, in a, uh, a medium which basically deals with two senses and, um, and often has difficulty with things like passage of time um, and has all the, 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 the constraints that come from the fact that, that, that things cost money. Um, just a question about uh, whether or not you're a believer in the spin-off, having made a few series yourself and in the light of uh, successful spin-offs like Better Call Saul, Frasier, are there any characters or storylines that you think would merit that? Uh, she's <laughs> that dead. <direction? laughs> um, I, I sometimes think that and... and you know, there was there was at one point where we did discuss whether Keith Allen's character in Bodies would spin off into uh, a series about a consultant, and that that never that just never materialised. It, it so th there have been moments when that's happened, but usually it happens when the program is coming towards the end of its life, and I've never really had that experience of being aware of that because uh, with. The, the series of mine that haven't carried on, it's always been because the broadcaster didn't want to recommission them. There was never a sense that we, we were getting towards exhausting the characters and the stories and we, therefore we needed to, to find a new way in. So it's possible that, that may happen with Line of Duty. You know, if we, if we carry on and we do six, seven, eight, eight seasons of it, then I can imagine that. But unfortunately in the past, all the, all, all the all the series that, that ended were kind, it was just, it was just the broadcaster. I mean, the, the press releases always say it's mutual in the way that every breakup is mutual, but, the, but some are more mutual than others. And um, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's always incredibly difficult when that happens. And normally then they're not e that they wouldn't be interested in a, in a, a spin-off, unfortunately. Well, unless anyone has any more burning questions, just um, like to say thanks to Jed for spending the time talking to us. And Pleasure. we look forward to Line of Duty 4 and 5 and maybe 6, 7 and 8. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Thanks, Sarah.